Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome to another episode of Talk and Ball with Pat Leonard, everyone. I am the New York Daily News' NFL columnist and Giants beat writer. We have a great show for you this week. I already recorded an interview with Jeff Fiegels, a Super Bowl champion punter, doing great work post-career, and he just teaches me so much and you so much about the game that you really wouldn't ever think about. From the punting position to special teams conversations, stories from his career, evaluations of current players, including on the Giants as well as around the league, he taught me about 15 to 20 things in 40 minutes that I didn't know, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Uh, But before that, I need to get something off my chest about the NFL and how things are being officiated and where things are going come the offseason when it comes to the roughing the passer rule. Before I get to that, I want to tell you about Bet Online. Basketball is back, and Bet Online remains your number one source for all your sports betting needs this season. You'll always find the latest odds, team matchup info, player news, and game trends at Bet Online. And as your continued source for all sports wagering information, Bet Online features live betting, free contests, and giveaways all season long. Always the fastest and easiest way to bet your favorite sports and events, whether that's NFL, NBA, NHL, MMA, tennis, boxing, or even golf. Head to betonline.ag to join and receive your 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure to use promo code BELIEVE, that's capital B-L-E-A-V, to receive your rewards. Bet online where the game starts. And where I start and finish right now, is putting my foot down and telling the NFL and anyone else who wants to listen, you cannot make roughing the passer a reviewable penalty call. You cannot do it. Mike Florio from Pro Football Talk, who has great sources, does great work. He reported coming out of this Dolphins-Chargers Sunday night game that sources tell him that there will be a push in the offseason to make roughing the passer reviewable. It is not at the moment. This came out of Jalen Phillips's sack of Justin Herbert and Scott Novak, the official throwing roughing the passer on the Dolphins pass rusher. Ridiculous call, horrible call. People say, well, it needs to be reviewable if you're going to call roughing the passer this way. No, that's not the answer. If it were up to me, we wouldn't have any roughing, we wouldn't have any review in the NFL at all. Don't review any calls. The reviews just extend the game and often they end up being either just as wrong or just as controversial as the original call that was made on the field. I've always said this about review, especially for subjective calls. So for example, you don't have a camera that shows you a guy stepped in or out of bounds with his second foot. Any review of a call that is subjective is also a subjective decision. So how can you tell me that a subjective roughing the passer call, so the referee using his opinion on what it is and what it isn't to make the call, then you're going to kick it up to somebody else watching on a screen who's going to use their opinion to either change the call or uphold it. It makes no sense. The solution is this. The solution is removing the subjective or the language that encourages officials to throw the flag when they're not sure. Florio pointed this out, and I thought it was a great point. The language says, when in doubt, call roughing the passer. Now, this is why officials, if they're on the fence, are throwing the flags on plays like this. That has to be eliminated. Troy Vincent from the NFL went around, I believe, in October and was telling us at the league meetings. He went on national television and said it and was open about the fact that the league wants to protect quarterbacks because they feel the league is popular and people watch at record high numbers because of the quarterback play. So you need to keep the quarterbacks on the field. I mean, I respect the brutal honesty. It was amazing to hear him say it out loud. But here's my question for Troy Vincent in the NFL. Isn't Brock Purdy, Mr. Irrelevant, last pick in the draft, coming in and quarterbacking the Niners and still looking like a Super Bowl contender. Isn't that one of the best stories going right now in the NFL? Is it Mike White coming in for a benched top two pick, Zach Wilson, and galvanizing the Jets and giving them life and hope? Isn't that one of the best stories in the NFL right now? 
isn't Taylor Heineke coming in and adding juice and energy and moxie that Carson Wentz could only dream to have coming in for an injured Wentz and having Washington on the cusp of a possible playoff berth when they looked like they were dead in the water. Isn't that one of the better stories in the NFL? Aren't the Arizona Cardinals arguably better with Colt McCoy at quarterback than Kyler Murray? Didn't Nick Foles come in and lead the Eagles to a Super Bowl five years ago when Carson Wentz got hurt? You're going to sit here and tell me that the protection of the starting quarterback is the only thing and the key cog in people watching or not watching games? Disagree. Are there situations and circumstances when that is the case? Sure, there are a handful of quarterbacks like Patrick Mahomes, Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, you know. Um, there's a group of quarterbacks where if they are not playing, you could throw Herbert in there too, where the appeal for that game would be less than it would be if they were playing. And yes, the star quarterbacks do move the needle. No one's going to say they don't move the needle. And I'm not saying don't protect the quarterbacks. I mean, you got to protect, you got to protect every player on the field. Player safety is important, but I don't like that argument from the NFL and I disagree with it. I'm sure they have the data to back it up that like when Aaron Rodgers plays for the Packers, every this many people watch. And when he doesn't, this many people watch, you know, listen, I get it, but that's not that you can't apply that across the board, every situation, especially when down the stretch right now, a lot of the most exciting storylines are about these quarterbacks who are coming in and picking up their teams or even proving that they should have been starting in the first place. And those stories you know, the cookie cutter nature of here's what the product looks like here, come and watch it. And I'll see you next week. It's an exciting league, but the stories and the changes and the, the, uh, the, the flipping of kind of storylines and the unexpected, random, unpredictable nature of the NFL, I think is what makes it so unpredictable or so, so enjoyable and why people love to watch it. The quarterbacks are a big part, but I think the league's parity, which they have worked very hard to create and every professional league works hard to create. I think parity right now is more of a reason that people watch. Like the fact that anyone can win on any week. Is that a good thing? I mean, it's not always fun to rob a sport of elite teams, Uh, but you know, cream rises. The Philadelphia Eagles are looking like a juggernaut right now. The Kansas city chiefs still looking great, even though they lost Tyree kill quarterbacks are a big part of it. You want to protect them, but only to the extent that it doesn't damage the game and make it unfair for the rest of the players. And that Jalen Phillips roughing the passer call was not a penalty, but the answer is not to add more time and energy and subjective decisions to the final call. The answer is to stop telling officials to throw the flags when in doubt and to stop encouraging them to do that. And as I said, if it were up to me, there wouldn't be any review in the sport at all. Let them play. Let them play. We'll be right back with Jeff Fiegels on Talking Ball. All right. Welcome to Talking Ball with Pat Leonard. We have a very special guest this week. He doesn't really need much of an introduction. I'll give him one anyway. Jeff Eagles, obviously well known for his NFL career, but around here in Bergen County, New Jersey, Jeff, I think you're almost as well now for the Eagles home team in yes. Bergen County and Ridgewood. Would that be accurate? And uh, could you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now post football sure. career? Well, thanks, Pat, for having me today. Um, I know we've been talking about doing this for a while, and I appreciate the time and um, and the plug. Um, so, yeah, I mean, post-career, I guess. Uh, I actually was selling real estate while I was playing football. You and I both have gone over that story many times. and um, But I've decided just in the last six months, I started my own team with two of my boys. I have four boys. So number two and number four are with me, Blake and Zach. Uh, the Fegels home team, we're, we're you know, set up shop here in Ridgewood, where we've lived for 20 years. And um, just dedicated to helping people with their real estate needs, whether it's buying, selling or investment stuff. So uh, we're here, we're here to stay. And we're just uh, trying to come out of a market that was actually very robust for two years. And now there's only 13 homes for sale in Ridgewood, which is by far uh, a record because I've never seen it for the 20 years that I've been doing this in town. This, this is ridiculous. But hey, wow. we're here to talk a little bit about football, but I appreciate you plugging the Fegels home team for me, Pat. Yeah, no problem. And like I said, you don't need any introduction as indicated by the Lombardi trophy over your shoulder. There it Super is. Bowl, yeah. yeah. 
That's beautiful. <laughs> it's a friendly reminder every day when I look up at the TV and I'm, uh, we designed our kitchen so that when I'm cooking, I'm a big cooker uh, and my wife is too. So when I'm cooking, I can look at the TV and that's, <laughs> I get to see that trophy there all the time too. So it's nice. Yeah. I was going to say, do you have bad days? I mean, like you're sitting there at eight o'clock at night, maybe it was a rough day at the office and yeah. you're sitting there and there's your Lombardi trophy as you're watching television. I-, uh, I, I tell you what, even if I do have a bad day, it cheers me up right away. So, uh, you know, that was a special run, as you know, in 07 and just being able to, to get, get one of those is a, is a trophy. I mean, uh, I told you that, that was in my 20th season when I got my Super Bowl. So, um, I waited a long time and it's, it's special and that's why it's out for, for me to look at every day. Great. So yeah, Jeff's a national champion, Super Bowl champion, two-time Pro Bowler, 22 seasons, 352 games, five teams, including his final seven seasons with the Giants and that championship to cap it all off. Jeff, I'm not sure if you are aware, but uh, Thomas McGahee, the Giants special teams coach, actually was praising you in a recent press conference because he was asked to, so now to get into the modern NFL, he was asked about why so many punters these days struggle kicking the ball out of bounds. And his quote was, we want to be able to kick the ball out of bounds. It's not an easy skill to do. The last guy that was here that was really good at it was Jeff Eagles. And I wanted to ask you, being so good at that throughout your career, one of the best really ever to do it, what does it take to be so good at that? And why nowadays in the NFL is it so rare? Well, I will tell you, and I appreciate that from Thomas. He's a, a good friend of mine. Obviously, we coached. Uh, he coached me along with Tom Quinn, and for years. And um, you know, the directional kicking is—it's lost. Nobody does it. At least try to do it. Some guys do it, but I don't know if they're consistently uh, trying to do it every single kick like I was. But um, you know, Pat, I'd really never developed it until about my eighth year in the league because. Uh, the game has started, it started to change at that point where the returners were getting much, much better. Um, and as I got a little bit older, um, you know, just kind of coming into my late, early 30s, 30 years old, I had to try to figure out something I wanted to do because the hang time just wasn't there as it used to be. But um, so I started to develop kicking in directionally um, and it became an advantage. And the one thing that why guys don't do it nowadays is because they don't practice it and they don't do it in, in college, you know. So um, they, every, all these Australian rules guys that they, they roll out in college, they do somewhat of directional kicking, but they're rolling out of the pocket and then kicking it to that side of the field. So if the ball in college, as you know, the, the hash marks are way out wide um, right. and the numbers are way out there. So it doesn't it's not a skill that they have to develop. So transitioning from the college to the pros uh, there isn't many guys that do it. Now, some of the guys that are still around, their coaches are having them develop it. But the problem is, is that it takes more time. And so, you know, not to say that I did it in college because I didn't, but I was able to perfect it because I wanted to do it for a reason. And that reason was if I don't start directional kicking, these guys are going to be returning punts on me and I'm not going to be in the league any longer. So I tried to develop something that nobody else was doing and it worked out pretty well. And you're saying that the reason they don't either teach it or practice it as much anymore is based well, on time as well as kind of how the game has evolved? It's it's more of the ability of the punter because they've never been asked to do it. And so then all of a sudden now you start to develop it and they're young, right? So I was eight years in the league punting in the National Football League. I I mean, at, at that point in time, I, I pretty much made it. Um, so now I was able to be able to – to try uh, to change something I did and being comfortable with the game, the speed and everything else. So these guys just don't have the experience in it. I didn't have the experience either, but I had a little bit of a leeway because I started to try to do it. And I had a coach that I tell you, Al Roberts was his name. He was my coach. And he, he, I mean, he was on me so bad that about the third game of the season, we had a closed door fight and, and it was not good. Um, wow. And I came out because he was just putting so much pressure on me to kick the ball out of bounds every time. So what we decided to do was I said, listen, I'll be willing to do this, but I'm not going to get it out of bounds every time. Can we maybe start on the numbers and progressively move to the out of bounds? And so that's <laughs> what I did. I started to try to put the ball on the numbers and then eventually it was inside the numbers. And, and then as soon as I got with Coach Coughlin, it was out of bounds every time. That's all he cared about. So, um, but it's more of because it's an ability. You really just have to change the field. It's it, you know when you're kicking, you turn you just a straight kick, but you just turn the angles. A lot of guys are worried about turning the field, like I'm saying, because 
they're worried about shanking the ball out of bounds right or if they turn to the left they're str- they're they're afraid that they're going to whip it to the left too far and it's only going to be a 25 yard punt so it takes a lot of confidence to do it but you got to have the coaches that will be willing and again i was an eight-year veteran when i started doing this they're a little bit more comfortable with me trying to do this because they already know I had the ability to kick anyways. And then being that you kicked, you kicked in several places, but you kicked in Philadelphia, you kicked in Mm -hmm. New York, and then obviously famously windy at giant stadium and here in New Jersey. I'm curious, like, does it help you or hurt you? Let's say in the off season, if you're working out and practicing things like that, but you're doing it in Arizona and then you mm-hmm. come to New Jersey and you're in New Jersey in December punting into a 20 mile an hour wind. Like how do you right. simulate and practice that? Um, well, in the off season, it's difficult. Um, you know, as I transitioned, when I played for the Cardinals, I was able to live out there and that was where I made my first pro ball. And by the way, I made my first pro ball that season when I told you that I went into that office with Al Roberts and we kind of basically, we had to, uh, uh, you know, come to Jesus meeting, like, listen, this is not going to work if you're going to continue to get on me on the sidelines because I have no confidence. So, you know, but that I as I developed it in that season. So by the, to answer your question, you got to work during, during, during the season when it's cold, when it's windy, when I was with, when I came here now, remember I played for the Seahawks too. So I got to play one year in the dome. Then we went over to the University of Washington, which was a hellhole for kicking. It rained, oh, yeah. it was windy, it was right in the water. Um, and then I actually got one year at the new stadium there in Seattle, which was very windy too, and then shipped me off to, to uh, the Meadowlands. But I will tell you this. Remember, I was with the Cardinals and I was with the Eagles. So I was in the NFC East. So I played in Meadowlands Stadium a lot. And I was uh-huh. able to figure out the wins in there for the small time that I played as an opponent. Um, mm-hmm. Then when I got to the stadium there as a giant, I made it because the, you were, I don't, you probably weren't on the beat then, but remember our, when they, the stadium was there, our, our practice facility, the bubble was right there. So everything, so we used to go into the stadium and kick. I kicked in the stadium every, every twice a week. And that's how I Got developed knowing the wins. And so, um, one of the funny stories about the rookies and they're all the young guys that used to come to the, to the games in the Meadowlands, they always used to ask me about the wins. And I used to tell them, just look at the flags up top at the stadium and whatever that flag's doing, it's the opposite on the field, which is a complete <laughs> lie. And so <laughs> I would get in the game and think they got it all figured out. And I would just look at them and going, nope, no wonder. <laughs> well, that was so, when, Gra- when Graham Gano was short on that field goal try against Washington in the tie a couple weeks ago. He was basically o- almost pleading with us to understand what the wind was like because when they were trying that field goal, I, all of us, including me, were looking at the flags and they're down and they're not moving. Right. So we're thinking, oh, well, there's no wind. And then they're telling us after the game, no, it was a 58 yarder. And we knew based on the wind and the pregame that it was 53 was his max, maybe like to Going get it, way. you know, to hit the bar. And it was so fascinating to me that none of us from a bird's eye view could even tell that the wind was blowing when it was that much of a factor. Lawrence Tynes, I didn't get the kick in the new stadium, but Lawrence Tynes had told me that in the new MetLife Stadium, the 30s, 30 into the goal line on one side, 30 into the goal line on the other, the winds are, there's no wind in the middle of the field. The wind starts from the 30s in. And so that's the reason. And so sometimes, you know, it just depends on which way it's going. Um, and and even though that the, the wind may not, the flags may not be down, but there's a little pockets of wind in there. So I know it sounds like it doesn't really make a difference sometimes, but five yards on a field goal, three yards on a, that I mean, 53, 58, that's the difference. If you saw where his ball hit, yeah. it hit about five yards short. And, you know, it's just like, so, um, and you could just tell him coming out on the field that, Listen, I, I mean, he's a heck of a kicker, but he can only do so much, you know. So, um, but the winds in Met, the old Meadowlands Stadium was, <laughs> I tell the people all the time, like, you think it's windy today? This is nothing. Trust me. This is like, I mean, this is like actually almost being indoors. That's so good. One more question about your craft, because I'm fascinated by the details of this. I think most people don't pay attention to it is. Sure. So when you worked on a new craft or new skill, yeah. like directional punting or whatever, how how long did it take you or what did you have to do? How many times in a row did you have to do it well to well, say, I got it? So one, in 1996 is when I started directional kicking. Um, and I came into the league in 1988. So you could tell I me mean, it's eight years of just regular kicking. Then all of a sudden, you know, it took me a good three years to understand, um, you know, the feeling confident enough, like, 
I felt confident to doing it, but there was still some hesitation in it because of what I told you earlier. Yeah. Um, and you know, when I, when I talked to all these punters that come into the giants and giving them this free advice about directional kicking and stuff, it's just, it's just like anything else. And if anybody plays golf, golf and punting are very similar. I'm a very good golfer. So this all kind of carries itself over, but it's all about committing to your shot and having confidence that you're going to get the ball there. And that carries over from practice. So, you know, uh, I got to practice at the new facility, obviously. Um, but I will tell you that, you know, the wind out at practice is much different than the wind at the stadium. So you actually get a chance to work with the wind and you got to understand how wind works and you got to understand how your ball works too, like how it comes off your foot. Um, because, you know, my ball, when I would kick to David Tyree and he'd come down and he would just catch those things when it comes off of my foot, it would go inside and then out. So I know if there's a wind blowing left to right, I got to cut my angle down a little bit or a little bit more because it's going to carry it out of bounds, vice versa on the other side. So there's a lot of things that go into it, um, you know, that nobody knows about and just some of the good ones figure it out. And some of the ones now I will tell you this pattern. We had this discussion with the Australian rules guys, the guys that are kicking the ball end over end. If you ever watch them on Sundays, there's all kinds of different balls going through the air. People don't know. They look like they're shanking footballs, but those are actually on, on purpose. What they're yeah. doing is Aussie kicks that kick right there can be controlled because it's a straight kick. It doesn't move left or right that much because it's end over end like a kickoff. So you really, I mean, if you really wanted to perfect something, I feel like the Aussie kick directionally, if somebody will do it, just line up 45 yards and kick it out of bounds every single time, but nobody will do it. Hmm. Well, what I got from that point was never gamble with you on the golf course. That's what I, that's what no, I No, you don't heard. want, well, let me just tell you this, Pat. <laughs> I, you can gamble with me. The problem, you're going to win money on me every single time because I'm always giving guys strokes on the first hole. So <laughs> I have to play exceptionally well to win every time. So, uh, I might just start sandbagging a little bit and then maybe put my handicap up so I can start winning some money this spring coming around. Yeah. Hustling. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> hustling, so yeah. yeah. So with the current giants now, we have a, a developmental punter of sorts yeah. who can really blast it in Jamie Gillen, the Scottish hammer. And I'm actually glad you and I are talking now because he's had some of his best games lately, in my opinion. Um, you know, obviously we'll, we'll talk about the play that, you know, the miscue that happened recently, but I thought he was excellent against the Cowboys. Just didn't get a lot of help from his gunners. Uh, seven punts, three inside the 20 against Washington, three inside the 20 on six punts against the Eagles. Do you agree with me that he is having some of his better games and honing yeah. his craft here? Yeah, and I, you know, I'm on social media, so I'm just, you know, I like to follow a lot of the uh, the stuff on there. Um, and again, it, this is, I will tell you, I'm glad that we didn't have social media when I played, right? Because it would drive me crazy. In fact, I wouldn't look at it anyways. But I get a kick out of listening or or even reading some of the comments on these things. Um, he's a young guy. I got to know him this year in the off season, uh, when he brought him in, Brian Dable asked me to talk to him a little bit. You know, he was with, uh, he was with Mike Prefer up in Cleveland and yeah. Mike Prefer was with me here before. So I know Mike Prefer well, I know how he demands a lot and he's a young guy. And so, uh, he, Mike Prefer really got in his head and he just couldn't get it out of there. So he went up to Buffalo, was with Dable with those guys up there. They kind of calmed them down. Um, you know, Sean McDermott, remember he was a special teams coach a long, long time ago with the Eagles. So he understands punting and kicking. So it's just a matter of him getting in the right place. And I think this is the right place for him. Um, he's got a lot of different kicks. Um, but I feel like what I love about Jamie Gillen is he's a worker. You, you're out of practice every day. He's working constantly. He's always working on what he has to do. You just got to get a little bit more consistent. And I think that he has to understand the game a little bit better. But I, I, I agree with you. Look at the game against the Eagles. His first two kicks were beautiful kicks. I mean, right down outside the numbers, uh, great coverage, things like that. And I think, he's got a, I think he's got a future in the league. It's just a matter of, you know, mentally. And I will tell you, once you make it in the league, he's been in the league for, you know, a little while now. It's more mentally than physically, and that's what he has to get over. I was I was just going to ask you that because you've hit he you've hit on the mental part about your career yeah. and your growth, and you're dealing with coaches' expectations, and then you said it about Jamie too. It sounds like I don't know if this is oversimplifying it, but as a specialist, you're spending a lot of time practicing by yourself and a lot of time probably during the games thinking about the next play you're going to do. It's all, I'm almost thinking of it as like in the World Cup when a guy needs to take a penalty kick, but then they review the play. So you're standing there for 20 minutes like, okay, yeah. it's a huge play, but you got to think about it. I mean, is it right. 
is it unsettling in that respect, having that much time to think about it? Is that part of it or? It's very difficult. Remember, you only get five or six at bats, as we call them, you know, a game. I mean, sometimes, I mean, I think the most times I ever punted in a game was 11. That was an overtime game. But, you know, <laughs> you're going to get typically between, you know, four and six punts, right? And so you, yeah. you got six times. Um, very rarely do you have all six of them or whatever it is that you're out there that you hit them perfectly, you know, exactly what you wanted to do. So the, the hardest part about it, Pat, is that when you have a bad one, um, and I was really concerned how Jamie was going to come back after what happened on Sunday with that mishap with the snap with the kick. Those are the hard things to come by because it sits in your mind and you're, you're going over and over it. The guys that succeed are the ones that are able to work mentally through that um, and just let it go. You know, just mm-hmm. got to you got to let it go and it's, get the next one. That's why these field goal kickers. Um, a lot of them are really good because when they miss field goals, they just there's nothing you can do about it. You got to go out there and get the next one. What uh, I would say that compounds that is the crowd, um, people around you constantly talking about it. Um, and as you know, the, in your example of the World Cup thing, you're sitting there, there's nothing more than people can talk about, right? And it's just what just happened, right? So you just want to almost crawl under a rug and just like, leave me alone. Just let me get back to where I need to be. Um, and, you know, the good guys are able to do that. So, and if you can't, you're not going to be around long. You're really not. And what, and I'm glad you brought up the response because what impressed me most about Jamie's response was, you're right, that was a really difficult play to go through to be a part of. And then his next punt is a 42-yarder that he downs at the eight-yard line out of bounds inside the 10. Right. I thought it was one of his right. better punts of the season. So and again, I thought that's that was great I, to see. I, I would evaluate uh, if I was a, my evaluation, which by the way, we hear it all the time from the coaches and the GMs that everybody's being evaluated constantly, which they are. To me, that's a huge evaluation point right there. How do you come back from something negatively happens? Think about quarterbacks, right? They throw an interception. You know, they got to come back with the next play. Defensive backs, the other one, they give up a huge play. What are they going to do? They, they got to come back and cover the next, the, never, the next route. So, you know, these are things as professionals you have to get over, and the guys that can't do it are the ones that don't last. The guys that can get over it mentally and be able to, to let it go, that's a hard thing. I'm telling you, it's not, it's, it, we're talking about it. It's, it's much easier to talk about <laughs> it than physically do it because just like anyone, if you do something and you do it wrong, it's going to sit there. You got to figure out how you're going to get over it. But we're in a football game now. We don't have time to go in the kitchen and start talking about it. We got to, we got to get up and go. And that's where coaching comes in. That's where Thomas McGahee, you know, and those guys got to be able to talk these young guys through it. I will tell you this, that most special teams coaches, if not all, they would rather have veterans because they don't have to actually act as that, that, you know, that psychologist on the sideline because most guys, if they're experienced and veterans have been through that. Yeah. And you, and it's not like you're a receiver where if you drop a pass, it could still be bad, but you might just be able to run a route five seconds later and catch another ball. And now yeah. you're right back into it. Right. You got another chance to redeem yourself, you know? And, um, and it's funny cause I don't want to get on this, but I just say holding is another thing too, because you know, Holding is a craft that a lot of people just take for take it for you know they just it's it's one yeah, of those things where nothing good happens with holding right until something bad happens is when everybody freaks out nobody <laughs> knows when when Graham Gano is making field goals and all these kickers are making them what's going on in there right spinning the ball trapping one getting everything until you drop one and I know that that he that Jamie has done that too right so yeah. and I did it. I, it, it is the hardest thing to get out of your head because you've dropped a snap and that is in your mind every single time you go out on that field. And until you get that thing out of your mind, it's like, oh my God, it's, it's horrible. So <laughs> there's a lot That's of a mental point. gymnastics that are going on in these games for kickers and everybody. Snappers too. I mean, think about like Zach Diossi. Do you remember Zach Diossi had, he went through this spell that he couldn't, it's almost like the Chuck Nobila thing. They couldn't throw to second base. It's like, yeah, it was bouncing. Mind, yep. Or the guys, people that get the shanks on the driving range. It's just like your mind is so powerful. So that should tell you something, how powerful your mind is positively and also how powerful your mind is negatively too. I know something about shanks on the driving range. <laughs> this, is a, this is a great week to talk to you because, first of all, we're coming off. This was a wild game for punters. So I wanted to right. ask you about a, a couple of the plays. So on the play where the ball slips out of Jamie's hand, I yeah. wanted to know, as a punter, should you, should he know not to kick it after it bounces? Because I, I asked that because the officials were confused. I mean, after the whole play, it took them a while to sort out. I think the ref kind of got on the microphone and said, oh, yeah. all right, well, here's the situation, right? That doesn't happen very often. Um, yeah. And 
it happened to me. Uh, my rookie year, when I was in New England, I was playing, we were at Miami, uh, and I did the same exact thing, basically. Caught the ball, went to drop it. I didn't, went, I didn't go to drop it. I actually just dropped it. It, it. I dropped the snap. And they were on an eight-man rush, so they were coming. So most of the time, the guys are on a return. You, if you drop it, you got a little bit of time to pick it up and do it. But if they're rushing, which you know they do, uh, the ball was sitting and I kicked it off the ground. I didn't know. So to answer your question, I don't think Jamie knew either. It's more of a spontaneous reaction that happens. It's like the ball's lying there. Either I'm going to pick it up and get crushed. And then I got <laughs> my head down. Maybe <laughs> that they're going to, I'm going to fumble it and they're going to return it for a touchdown. So it's like a natural response just to kick it off the ground. And, um, and I will tell you, I know exactly what happened there. Um, because I played mm. for so long and there was an evolution of kicking balls, right? If we can ever just go back to the Tony Romo field goal against Seattle that year where he dropped that ball, that was a kicking ball. That ball is slick. Those balls, when it's, when it's cold and it's rainy, they're very, very slick. And I'm going to give your viewers a, a thing, and you're going, to, I'm going to, you're going to pick up on this next time too, Pat. Look at the balls that are flying through the air with the quarterbacks. They're dark chocolate. They're, they're worn in. They practice with them all week. Kicking balls, nah. They're brand new every single game. They're, they're slick, and wow. when it gets wet, it, they get very slippery. It's exactly what happened to Jamie. He got that ball. He's left-handed. He went to put it out to kick it, and when he squeezed it, it's, it, it literally came out of his hand and down to the ground, and that happens. I've had it happen in practice uh, because practice we kick with brand-new football. So when you're out, that I'm telling you, and nobody knows about that thing. We have been – We've been, I can say this now because I don't play anymore, but we have been doctoring footballs for decades, right? We would get balls and we would rub them down and we would put put like, you know, 45-pound plates on them and rolling around and the league found out we were doing that and then they started shipping the balls to the stadium and only the equipment guy could rub them down. And, you know, so when I heard about Deflategate, I mean, yeah. obviously we would never want to kick balls that are flat. But when I heard about Deflategate, I'm like, what the heck is the deal with that? We've been doing that forever, you know? So they just not. Um, but it was just kind of funny because that's what happens. The balls are very, very slick. You're like, yeah, I hope there's a statute of limitations on uh, on my career, what I did with the football. Yeah, right? well, I'm going to get a lot of the other 31, you know, however many there was when the league – I mean, there wasn't always 32 teams when I was playing, but get those guys in trouble. <laughs> Wait, so why, why though, are those passing and the, the game footballs allowed to be, you know, broken in a little bit right now? But the kicking balls are not quarterbacks get whatever they want, you know, Um, and they don't, you know, the quarterbacks complain. Um, The quarterbacks want to be able to throw, you know, one of the reasons why you saw Kurt Warner wear gloves was exact. That's exact reason. The balls are just too slippery. So with the gloves, a lot of quarterbacks wear those tackified gloves, man, you can rip them with the gloves on, you know? So a lot of the punters uh, around the league, if you look, they have a, they have a glove on their left hand. And that's for catching the ball, you know, so that they, just, they can grip it because, and there are some guys, I don't know, there's not a lot of them, but I was actually, I never, I never played with gloves until it got really, really cold, like in, in Green Bay that year. Um, yeah. And uh, once I started doing that, I, I, I liked it because it was like a comfort it was zone. <laughs> it's like, I got a glove on, tackified, I can catch this thing. Um, but, you know, before that, I was just, scared to death sometimes i'd come on the field and the first thing i look at is the ball on the ground i'm like oh my god that thing is brand new right out of the box this is gonna suck you know <laughs> this ball is going nowhere <laughs> so i i am learning so much i feel like i'm in class and i should be taking notes yeah, right now no. like i've i've learned about 15 things from you in the last 20 minutes that i didn't know i i will tell you that um yeah if we had more time you would learn a lot more too but there's a lot of secrets to the kicking game that a lot of people don't know um, including wind and tunnels and the old Meadowland Stadium and just all kinds of different things that kickers. That's why we get a that's why we get a bad rap because a lot of things we do are really weird, but they work. You know, <laughs> that's right. I wanted to ask you too about another wild play: Aaron Sipos, the Eagles uh, punter, yeah. getting the punt blocked, picking it up with one hand and almost advancing it fifteen yards for a first down. Two two questions about that. How skillful of a play was that by Sipos? And then the second question is, how big of a loss is his injury? I see that they have picked up Brett Kern, uh, the yeah. former Titans punter, to replace him. Which, by the way, Brett Kern's no slouch. I mean, the guy's a little bit older, and he's uh, you know he's gone to the Pro Bowl many times. Um, so I think they'll be okay there. I think that 
uh, I think switching out a punter is much easier than switching out a kicker because the kicker involves a different kind of, you know, you got the holder there. So the kicker is different now. Your holder is different if you're the kicker. So punting, it's just the guy snapping back there. So I think they'll be okay switching them out. But um, obviously, you know, he, he's, a, he's a very good punter. I think Brett Kern will do a fine job. Um, the play itself um, happened to me many times. I had 12 punts blocked in my career. Um, I can remember that number because I remember every one of them. It's, they're not I was just going to say that. It's not. It's the, the, the double thump is the worst. Um, for two reasons. One, it's it's a big play in the game, momentum. And the second thing is that anything can happen, uh, just like what happened there. He, he was able to pick up the football. Now, much better athlete than I ever was, I could tell, just by the speed of him running and picking the thing up. Um, but it's, it's, it's dangerous because those guys are professional assassins that are on the other side. They want to absolutely murder you because you're a kicker. Uh, they never get to hit you because you're protected by the law of the flag. So when that happens, it's on. And those guys are going to try to mess you up bad. And they're going to hit you as hard as they can. Um, and it's happened to me many, many times. And I can't tell you how you prepare yourself for that because we don't. We don't go out there and do tackling drills and things like that. All I know is when that happens and I have the ball in my hand, I know that it's going to hurt and it's going to happen <laughs> quickly. Um, and those guys are so fast, Pat. I mean, there's plenty of times where I've had a ball, you know, not a block kick, but on the ground and I'm not going to be able to kick it. And I look up and the whole right side of the field is wide open. And all of a sudden you take three steps and it just closes like the – I mean, it's unreal how fast those guys and they just annihilate you. So um, – and real quickly, ironically, it's with the Eagles, but one of the reasons why I got back into the league, I got cut from New England after my second year in 1990 was my first year with the with the Eagles. Mm -hmm. Buddy Ryan brought me in and told me that I'm going to be playing because back then if you went on IR, you, had, you went on IR for eight weeks. So they were putting John Telchik, who was the punter in Philly, on IR for the first eight games of the season. And I was going to be there for the first eight games. And then he was going to come back. And Buddy said, hey, you'll get a chance, you know, get back in the league or this and that. John Telchik, ironically, got hurt on a, a punt like that where he made a tackle and blew out his knee. And he never oh. came back and played again, ever. So he had to retire. And that's how I got my job from Philly and ended up being there for four years. So, you know, something like that, hopefully he's going to be okay. But um, that's what's dangerous about kickers and punters. We're just not, we're not conditioned to take hits like that. Wow. What a story. Yeah. And like you said, the guys on the other side, their closing speed and size. It, it's just not, not oh my God. you know, <laughs> you see it. Yep. I just, and I tell people all the time, they have no idea how fast these guys are. I mean, 300 pounders running 4.7. That's, that's insane. It's like, so if a four, a 300 pound guy can run four, seven, four, eight, what do you think a 185 pound guy can run? <laughs> I mean, and they, I mean, it's just, and these guys are just, they're just such great athletes. And, you know, these guys are, they're nutso. These guys love to tackle and I don't like to get tackled. Never did. So I tried not to make those type of mistakes, Pat, so that I knew I wouldn't get killed out there. Smart man. So uh, coming down the stretch here, just a couple more. I know you're, you're sure. a busy man. Um, turning to the Giants, the current Giants team and where they stand going into this Sunday night game, basically a playoff game against Washington. This is an open-ended question, but you can take it out wherever you sure. want. What do you think of what Brian Dable has built so far? And how concerned are you by where the team is right now? Or do you do you look at this more big picture and say they already have overachieved? I look at it as big picture. Um, I feel like that the Giants are kind of what they we thought they were going to be, you know? So um, I think they got off to a good start. I think that number one, it's it just like any new team. Um, teams just don't know who you are. You have a new head coach, you have a new general manager, you have a new offensive coordinator, you've got a new defensive coordinator. So there's a lot of things to work out. And as you and I both know in this league, it doesn't take long for people in the national football league that are coaching to figure things out. So I think that they, they are overachievers and I'm not saying that this is a bad thing, but I'm just telling you that, I like what Brian Dable is doing. I believe that one of the biggest things that he has provided this team and this fan base and this organization with is team culture. He has totally turned it around. I think guys believe in the systems. I think that he keeps those guys tight. He keeps them honest. Okay, he's an honest guy. If you don't practice, you don't play. Um, and couldn't. That's just a lot of Tom Coughlin like right there, right? So he's got his mm. rules and things like that. So I think it's okay. Now the Washington game coming up 
going to be a tough, tough game. They are more ascending, where I think the Giants are now kind of plateaued to a point where the injuries are starting to kick in. Their wide receiver position is just not doing anything. You got a, a, quarter, a quarterback who's playing well um, and is healthy, but you got a running back who at the beginning of the year was very, very good and was making a lot of plays. He's injured now, so um, I think that it's a tough road for these guys. But on the, up, on the ups and ups, completely from, I think, an organizational standpoint, the Giants are definitely going to be in the right place in a, in a year or two. Could you give me an example or two of how you feel Dable has turned the culture or changed it? Well, first of all, it takes um, an analysis of who your guys are on your team. And I think that Brian has gotten to know every one of those guys in the offseason, their personalities and things like that. Jimmy Johnson, who I played for at the University of Miami, he had a psychology major. And I remember always hearing him talk about psychology. Uh, if you're a head coach in the National Football League, you should have a degree in psychology because <laughs> you got to figure these guys out. Every one of them is different. You know that, Pat. You interview these guys constantly. They're all different. They all beat to a different drum. Um, some yeah. of them are, you know, they're afraid of criticism. Some guys take it as a, you know, they, they do well with it. So it, I think that's what he's done a good job is managing the people that, he's, that he has on that team from the time he got here. Now, he got rid of a lot of people. Um, and I feel like that Tennessee game – that two-point conversion, um, that to me set the culture. That was one mm. of those things where the guy said, okay, you know, we've gone through training camp with this guy. We've gone through the offseason. Is he really for real? Is this like, is this just who he is? And boom, go for two, win the game. Okay, I'm in. I'm in for this guy. And I think that, you know, eventually I think there's guys from the outside, not the draft picks, but the free agents, the guys that want to come here, they're going to want to come and play for a guy like this because I feel like um, – and I think a lot of people will tell you that if you can win in New York, you, you got it made and you're going to be successful. So I think that he'll do, but that's kind of thing. And then you got to have guys that believe and you got to have guys that police um, in the locker room. You got to have guys that are, that are kind of, you know, Brian Dable fans that can, you know, if you see somebody doing some things like that's not how we do this. You know, mm. we don't come to practice like that. We, we come out there five minutes earlier, whatever it is. And, and they police themselves. And I think that Brian's been a, done a good job at getting guys in that locker room to do that. Julian Love strikes me as one of the guys who's been that for Brian Dable yeah, this year. And he's another sure. guy that's uh, on that defensive side. Um, offensively, I think that Daniel Jones and Eli have always been the same in a sense that they just kind of rule by – I mean, they, they lead by example more than anything. Um, I think Saquon and Shep and those guys are kind of the guys that do that kind of stuff. And, you know, you yeah. want to throw an alignment in there once in a while. And I think that Thomas is a guy – I'm not in the locker room enough to know his demeanor in there. Is he, is he one of those guys? But I think that um, – you know, they're, they're going in the right direction as far as quality and character. Mm, I agree. And then, um, just wanted to wrap it up with a fun one. Is it, is it true that Plaxico never made good <laughs> on the number yeah. 17 Jersey swap? Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, I won't get too, too into the specifics, <laughs> but the fact is that, uh, we kind of made a deal. Um, it was a handshake deal and, um, it really wasn't, my deal really wasn't with Plaxico. It was with uh, his agent, Drew Rosenhaus. You know, oh. that's kind of how it was, uh, it was, you know, put together. And then, of course, uh, I always I went to Plaxico and asked him about the, the money and everything. And he's like, you know, I said, you don't have to pay me the money, but you can, you know, give me this outdoor kitchen. It's kind of what Eli did for me on a trip to, to Disney. I went down to Destin, Florida. And he's like, yeah, right we'll for number 10. Yeah. So, you know, off the record, we came up with a little bit of the of value of it and what it would toss. And, just never got the money. And I actually addressed uh, Drew Rosenhaus one time in the lot in the parking lot after a game. And he said, no, that's between you and Plaxico. I'm like, no, it's not. It's between you and I, we're the one that did this. Um, oh, but you know, the bottom line is no. And, but the, this is, this is how great the, the giants organization is. They understand what happened there. They understood that I was trying to do a good thing for somebody. By the way, number 17 was my number. He, st he signed his contract with the giants on March 17th. That's why he wanted 17. Ah. I, I could care less about 17. I took 17 because when I gave 10 to Eli, that was my 17th year in the league. That's just why I took 17. It didn't really matter to me. I could care less. So random. Um, so then I just, 18 was available. So I took 18. I was like, okay, great. So I finished with 18. Nobody else wanted 18 by the time I retired. So, uh, but it's all good. The Giants, um, they made good on it and they appreciated uh, me just keeping my mouth shut because it kind of, kept it underneath, uh, kept it under wraps for a while. So, but it's all good. 
Well, we'll have to get plaques uh, against you on the golf course one day so you can uh, so I you tell get people that all the time, Pat. I'm like, listen, I forgive the guy because, uh, you know, in my 20th season in Arizona with, you know, a little less than two minutes left in the game, he caught a pass in the end zone to win the Super Bowl. I'm okay with that. So <laughs> <laughs> he, he paid you back. <laughs> back yeah. Jeff, it's been great having you. Where can, uh, where can people find the Feagles home team and all the great work you're doing in, in real sure. estate and in the business yeah, you know, you can here. go where I would say the best place to go is our website. It's uh, Um, And we've got all the resources on there. Got a little bit about myself, a little bit about Blake and Zach, my two boys that are on there. Um, places, you know, it's just a, a very, um, it's a great website, very interactive. You can go on there and search for homes. You can give us an alert if you want to be on our mailing list or whatever it is. So, uh, Feagles.com, the Feagles team, Feagles team.com. Just go to that thing and spend a little time on there. Awesome. You hear my doorbell going off. It's Christmas time. So the Amazon's delivering all the Amazon gifts, Jeff. There. Crazy yeah, time pretty, of year. Yeah. I'll have to give you my address because I'm sure you sent something. You need to send something to my house, you know? They'll, That's they'll right. That's your house, Pat. We'll get a talking ball t-shirt maybe over to the Feagles <laughs> residence. That would be awesome. That would be amazing. Anytime uh, you want me to come back on, I'm here for you, Pat. Thank you. I would love it. Thanks, Jeff. Take care. You're welcome. All right. Let's get over to Pat's picks, our top three selections against the spread for week 15 in the NFL regular season. These are brought to you by betonline.ag. And obviously, as always, go to my Instagram at PL on NFL on Friday for my picks against the spread for every game. We're going to start with my best bet in week 15, the Cincinnati Bengals minus three and a half at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Obviously, a big favorite on the road against Tom Brady. Not used to seeing that. The Buccaneers, though, have lost two of their last three since the bye. They should have lost all three if it weren't for that comeback against the Saints team that gave that game away. The Bucs have scored under 20 points, listen to this, eight times in their 13 games, and they've scored under 20 in all of their last three, 17, 17, and seven. Of course, this San Francisco 49ers, who they just lost to, the best defense in the NFL, but the Bengals are red hot. They've won five straight, and they are a league best 10 and three against the spread. That is the best in the entire NFL this season, and Lou Anarumo's defense Joe Burrow, we know Joe Burrow is playing at a high level and getting better every week, and that offense can score. But Luana Rumo's defense for a second straight season now, rounding into form and really the unsung hero of why this Cincinnati team isn't just good, but is one of the best teams in the league again and challenging for a second consecutive Super Bowl berth. I love this pick. I absolutely love it, and I think the line is going to balloon even more. Uh, two more picks I'll give out here. The Lions are a pick em at the Jets. I think with Mike White banged up and the Jets reeling somewhat, having lost four of their last six, uh, this will be at home. And so it'll be a good environment for Robert Sala's defense, especially to try and make a stand against Detroit. Uh, but the Lions have just been too tough lately. They've won five of their last six. I'm not going to sit here and tell you I trust Dan Campbell's late game management. I do not. But they are a tough team, and I think one of the Jets' defining qualities, along with an improved talent uh, across their roster, is that they are hard-nosed. They don't back down. They're tough. They play aggressively. But the Lions are going to match that. You know, That's one of actually their key elements. And I think the Lions' defense has gotten light years better as this winning streak has continued, and I don't think the Jets are going to move the ball easily, if at all. And the Lions already won a game in this building against the Giants. Different teams, different stakes, different times of year. Uh, but right now, you know, we talked about the Bengals, the Bengals, the Lions. These are some of the hottest teams in the league. And if I have learned anything covering not just the NFL, the NHL, any sport, it is that when at this time of year, the teams that are hottest and playing the best keep winning. And usually the teams who win into the postseason, they aren't the ones who eke in and scratch and claw their way. They're the ones who get hot and stay hot. And then the last pick I'm going to give out now, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say you, you can sprinkle on this one, um, but I like this stood out to me, the Jags uh, plus four and a half. So four and a half point underdogs at home against the Dallas Cowboys. Now the Cowboys are eight and five against the spread and the Jags are only five and eight against the spread, but 
Jacksonville's getting hot at the right time too. They've won three of their last five and they have a chance to make a charge and win their division and get into the playoffs. Uh, they, they are facing the Jets, they're facing the Texans, and they're facing the Titans after this game. And so even though the, the chances and their uh, opportunity, or I guess the percentages are slim, you know, they're feeling it and they can see it. And I love the rhetoric I heard after their win over the Titans. Players talking about how Doug Peterson showed them film and tape that reinforced that the Titans in Tennessee had no reason to respect Jacksonville because they had dominated the rivalry and it wasn't much of a rivalry at all. And so I think they they have the right attitude. And of course, Trevor Lawrence is playing at a number one overall pick level. Not surprising, but good to see now that he has a real NFL head coach uh, helping to guide his offense. Dallas Cowboys, of course, have won their last four, but that feels like a team where some injuries are catching up to them. They lost their right tackle, Terrence Steele, for the year just now, coming out of last week's game. And obviously, everybody has a dud, but uh, they barely beat the Houston Texans, who they can move the ball and score with Davis Mills at quarterback that Houston can. Uh, but you know, Dallas, I don't think is – you look at a team like the Eagles, you look at a team like the Bengals, you look at a team like the Lions, You know, some of these squads that are hitting their stride – um, I think Dallas is a really good team, but they don't strike me as a team that I look at any game against a hot team like the Jaguars and say, oh, Dallas is going to blow them out. You know, Blowing out the Colts is one thing. Blowing out a hot Jaguars team playing with energy and belief is another. And uh, so I like Dallas to win this game, most likely. I mean, it would be tough for me to pick the Jaguars straight up in this game, but I definitely like Jacksonville to cover. I would say this. I would watch this line maybe. Because um, I could still see people putting money on Dallas and having this line move even more. So if this if this line goes to plus five, you know, then I'm you know plus five, plus five and a half, whatever it is, I'm definitely jumping all over the Jaguars. But that those are my top three picks. I will say, since you're probably listening to this before Thursday night football, I like the Seahawks. I think they're plus three and a half, so three and a half point underdogs to the Niners in Seattle. I, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily saying the Seahawks are going to win that game, but on the short weeks, even a great defense like San Francisco, these short week Thursday night games, they all, they often lead to some unpredictability. Who knows, even though Brock Purdy's been uh, really impressive as the Niners backup QB stepping in for the injured Jimmy Garoppolo, who knows how he handles, reacts to really the most difficult environment to play in in the entire NFL. So I still think the nine, I would still pick the Niners to win straight up if I had to, but I like the Seahawks to cover. And I also think that even though their defense has really struggled, I think that their backs are against the wall now trying to make the playoffs. And that that's one interesting element of Dallas and also Seattle. Like Dallas is still playing for trying to catch the Eagles. They still have an opportunity to beat the Eagles. Um, I believe it's on Christmas Eve and still try to challenge for that division and, and push up the NFC standings there. Um, so there is something to play for for these teams, not just the opponents like the Jaguars um, and the Niners that they are facing. Um, but going back to Thursday night, I think Seattle keeps it close, and and I think the Niners likely win, but I like the Seahawks to cover if you're if you're betting on Thursday night. So those are Pat's picks for the week. Thanks, as always, for listening. And please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and also on my YouTube page, at PL on NFL. Thanks for listening as always. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and we will catch you next week right here on Talking Ball with Pat Leonard. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.